Sunday Dispatch. Listening to Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we take a close look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social political complexities, and often examine the way that they're covered in mainstream media. Artificial intelligence has gone from the world of science fiction movies into the realm of reality, with varying rates of success from Tesla's crash prone self driving car technologies to recent phenomenon ChatGP, an advanced AI chatbot claimed by many as one of the most intelligent artificial intelligence systems ever built. But are we thinking carefully about how these technologies are being developed and implemented? And behind the appearance of automation, who are the workers ensuring the smooth operation of these technologies? We're joined this week by Nanjala Nyabola. Nanjala is a writer, researcher and activist focused on the intersections and tensions between technology, society and politics. She's also written extensively about Kenyan and East African politics and society. Nanjala, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. AI is often touted as a new frontier in technology, a sort of monumental step forward for, you know, the future potential business and profit generation, one where human input isn't so much required. But artificial intelligence really only is as good as the algorithm that's been written for it to keep it running. A recent Time magazine investigation found that dozens of Kenyan workers were paid less than $2 per hour to process large amounts of distressing and violent content in order to teach ChatGP content moderation. Nanjala, how common is the outsourcing of digital platforms content moderation to more impoverished nations or marginalized communities? It's pretty common. Um, it's been part of the model uh, pretty much since the beginning, especially for social networking platforms. Um, in the early days of content, mod- so content moderation hasn't always been part of uh, social networking, especially, but more broadly, it's something that um, people have increasingly made demands for, I'd say probably about 15 years now, 10 years now, because of the realization that the vast majority of what is on the internet is not uh, positive, you know, to, to put it quite simply. There's most of us, when we go online, we're kind of interacting with about maybe 10% or 20% of what's on on the internet. But the dark web is is very extensive. And even if you're not on the dark web, if you go on Twitter, uh, Facebook, whatever, you'll find that um, a lot of what is on there, if you click on a, on a hashtag, a lot of what is on there is not necessarily the kind of positive content that people would want um, to consume if, if it was down to them. So um, I'm talking about pornography and violence and sexual violence especially, but also just uh, people who document systemic violence and who video themselves committing horrible acts of violence and put it online. So um, content moderation has was a response to this demand for a bit more of a ba- barrier or a buffer between the ordinary user and some of this negative content. And so the instinct is basically to to just slow down that information or to put barriers between that information and, and the people who consume it. Initially, the big bulk of content moderation work was being done in the Philippines because um, it's an English-speaking country. 
it's um it 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 also like not just purely uh, UK English, but sort of be able to move between UK English and US English. And at the time, um, this was in the mid 2010s, um, the biggest market for social networking was in the United States. Um, that's changed slightly in the last couple of years. So uh, the Philippines has been providing English speaking content moderation for not just social networking, but also for um, the low wage uh, tech workers. India um, also a huge pool of low wage uh, tech workers who basically are the labor backbone of a lot of the tech that we consume um, in the West and in, in you know, other English speaking um, uh, communities. There's also a significant amount of content moderation that happens in specific language uh, markets. So for example, the law in Germany provides that content moderation has to be done in Germany. So there's a lot of German language content moderation that happens there. The US, I think there's also, there has historically been content moderation in the US, but then in light of the rising litigation about the standards of work, this is why there's also been this increase looking to Africa, looking to Latin America, to places where there wasn't traditionally uh, 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 this uh, labor pool or wasn't seen as traditionally as this labor pool to stand in because there's increasing demands for better uh, protections for workers in the US. But there was a significant amount of content moderation that used to happen in the US as well. I'm really struck by how, um, I guess it really is like it's hidden labor in a way. Most people, when they log on to these digital platforms, they really don't think about uh, like the people behind it making these sort of things run. And I guess it's interesting because there's an argument that a lot of people have been making that these sort of digital tech giants, social media companies, um, they extract you know, they make money, they extract profit purely from, you know, data and selling that data and moving around. But I guess it also is equally important how like this sort of hidden labor force is um, and like how I guess that maps onto how labor is, you know, historically and continues to be extracted in all sorts of industries from these global South countries. And it's really the same in this case as well. It is. And I think um, a lot of Indian researchers have been looking at it because obviously India has, aside from the Philippines, which is specific to social networking site, for digital technology more broadly, India has been a site where the low wage workers, Indian Bangladesh low wage workers have been providing all of this labor to make digital tech uh, look slick and 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 be advanced and, and processing these vast amounts of information. And then you have this rise of this billionaire class in India, which are the people who are basically managing or the intermediaries for this uh, low wage uh, structures. And so the people who own the outsourcing companies, and that's obviously a very familiar model because that is how a lot of the clothing that people in the West wear has been made for the last 20, 30 years. It's um, the, the way in which the economics are set up, it provides the appearance of growth, of economic growth because you have this rising class of middle class or even extremely wealthy billionaires who in aggregate make the economy look you know, like it's growing. But if you disaggregate that data, you find that one person's become a billionaire and maybe, you know, I don't know, 10,000 people have become middle class because they're management in these structures. But then you have 
200,000 people who are stuck in low-wage, um, high-risk um, labor contexts. And there isn't a lot of, there has been some career advancement for people. There are people who have, um, there's a significant amount of writing, um, uh, Tanmoji uh, Sundarajan writing sort of about caste systems and how um, digital tech did make it possible for so a significant number of people to break out of the caste system in India, which has, you know, also um, created a significant amount of its own exploitation structures. But what's next is the question that's on the table. What what do we imagine the future of tech will be if all we're doing is kind of shuffling the cards around so that some people get super wealthy and some people get stuck in this exploitative uh, wage cycles? The labor question for me has just really been the, the way in which it fits into the mold of extractivism has just really been fascinating. And this, I think, is another face of that. This content moderation debate is another face of that. Mm. And a lot of these content moderation workers are working like in gig work paradigms. Is that correct? It is. Well, it's mixed. It's mixed, mm. actually. So I think the gig workers are slightly separate because they are... Uh, legally a class of employment and this has been fought in courts all over the world that the platforms are saying you're not our employees and so we're not liable for whatever happens to you with the outsourcing model with the content moderators what happens is that they are employed by a third company and the company is contracted by uh the big platforms or whoever is developing the the ai tech so with gp for example it's uh sama source in kenya is a kenyan company it's registered in kenya and many people are waged employees but they are uh not on the payroll of uh microsoft which owns open ai which is is what's building the tech so there's a level of abstraction there um the 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 challenge with all of this outsourcing models is number one um, the revenue doesn't get distributed equally, right? Um, the valuation, OpenAI's valuation, the thing that makes it a billion dollar company is based on the work that is being done by these guys who are earning $2 a day. But the risk, they're OpenAI is insulated from the risk. The litigation right now is trying to untangle this knot, but really they're insulated from risk. They're insulated from the consequences of the things that their profitability is predicated on. And this is so reminiscent of, again, what happened with, I don't know if you remember in, I think it was in 2006 with the Rana Towers in Bangladesh, all of these people who were making clothes low, you know, for H&M and Gap and all of these companies. And then when, I think it was like 2000 people, but please fact check me on that number, um, you know, the fire happens in the factory and then they say, well, they don't work for us. And I think the reason why I keep making going back to this analogy is because people really want tech to be new and shiny and so different from everything that went before. But the patterns of wage exploitations have shown themselves to be very resilient and very recurring. And so this model, as much as it presents itself as a novel way of addressing the problem of content moderation and of training AI, actually builds on this historical model of abstracting labor and outsourcing labor in order to insulate the profit making from its social and political consequences. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a yeah very, um, very good way of putting it. In terms of 
algorithms. I mean, digital technologies, particularly social media technologies, often advertise as ways of connecting the world. And, you know, obviously there's been examples of how social networks like Twitter have helped people's movements across the world. But it's also incredibly clear, you know, particularly with Twitter again, that whoever owns these platforms, whoever owns the technology, who decides the input data, the algorithms, can have a, very, a major impact on the way that these technologies operate. Is it the same with um, with artificial technologies? Um, yes. So again, my um, call uh, and my approach is always to tell you, we'll go back to the basics. What's the basic of what this technology does? And I, I, I would be remiss to claim that this is my sort of original line of thinking, novel thinking. There are a lot of really cool people who have written fantastic books about this. Um, Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Moja Noble, um, Weapons of Math Destruction, Kathy O'Neill, uh, Ruha Benjamin's, you know, Race Against Technology, and really raising the question of, at its basic, what is an algorithm? What does it do? what does it reflect and what are its consequences? It's a mathematical formula at its very basic. And the quality of the algorithm is only as good as the quality of the input that goes into it. And if the algorithm is trained on bad information, it doesn't matter how good the algorithm is. Garbage in, garbage out. Whatever was wrong with the model going in, it's going to be wrong uh, going out. I think the main criticism has always been that we people who build AI, people who build these kinds of platforms would have us believe that, the, let me give a more concrete example. The original chatbot that Microsoft had built was really premised on the idea that it would reflect the world as it is. And so it was scraping whatever was on the internet and uh, turning that in, you know, the model was being trained, the, the chatbot was being trained on whatever was going was out on the internet and it became racist in like two days literally racist sexist uh anti-semitic in like two days why because the vast majority of what is on the internet as i said at the top it's not great stuff does that mean that the vast majority of people in the world are not good people no it means there's a self-selecting group of people who go online and they post certain things and they share certain opinions and they they like if i'm a happy well-adjusted uh person you know i'm not online 90 percent of my waking days sort of angrily spewing hate or angrily spewing opinions or even happily spewing opinions like 90 percent of the day i'm with my friends i'm with my partner i'm taking a walk i'm doing other stuff so there's a certain self-selection that was happening with the content that this algorithm was being trained on, and then you end up in the cul-de-sac that we have before. And so this is why there was a need for content moderation. There was a need to go, well, how do we um, filter? How do we you know, teach the machine on, how do we narrow down the pool of information that's going into the, the algorithm so that it's, or into the chatbot so that it's a little bit less, um, reflective of all of this toxicity. That's a choice that's being taken by a human being, right? The choice to ring fence information in a certain way, the choice to privilege certain information, positive or negative, for better or worse, that's a deliberate choice that's being made. 
And you see this with algorithms that govern all kinds of things. You, you could be presented with the idea that this is, um, you know, it's just the data. We're just letting the numbers do what it does. But that's not true. There's always a measure of decision-making that goes into the, the pool that starts off, the, the big pool from which the, the algorithm is drawing its, in, its information, it's calculating things like that. And so I think what I'm really keen to do with my work and with my advocacy is, and I and a lot of people are keen to do this, you know, Timot Gebru, Emily Bender, let's not believe the lie that just because an algorithm is technically sound that whatever it produces is also technically sound let's not believe that lie let's keep our, our two feet planted on the ground and and be honest with the fact that it reflects whatever biases whatever perspectives whatever ideas are in the data that it's being uh, used to process. And so it's a call to to have, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, a measure of humility in the promises that were being sold about some of this technology and and to have a measure, an increased measure of accountability about the algorithms. And then the last call is obviously transparency because as much as we're throwing around the word algorithm, a lot of the algorithms that govern our lives, we don't really know. The, for, we, we say it's a mathematical formula, we say it's this and this, but we don't actually know, for example, the algorithm that um, governs your homepage on Facebook and shows you this information, but not that information. There's no transparency behind that. It's all held as proprietary corporate information. And they say, well, we can't share that with you because, you know, it's our business, it's our business model and things like that. But that then also means that we can't audit it. And we can't figure out what it is that makes it throw up this racist content and not, uh, you know, positive content. Why don't I see more knitting results? And um, throwing human beings as content moderators into the mix in order to protect that proprietariness, in order to protect that corporate interest is a shortcut uh, solution that I think is gonna generate more problems in the long run, which is what I was arguing in my essay. And, and I think what Bill was arguing in his piece as well. What happens to these human beings when they're done training the algorithms and they're stuck with all of this trauma? Do we then just throw them away? Absolutely. And something extremely important to keep in mind, um, especially when engaging with these te technologies, talking about them. Um, I'll put a link up to Nanjala's essay in Al Jazeera up on the program's description on the podcast. We've been chatting to writer and activist Nanjala Nyabola today. Nanjala, thank you so much for joining us today on Sunday Dispatch. Thank you. Thanks for having me.